miserable, sorry, apologized to God, vowing she would never neglect him again, only to find several days later she didn't be in the same place. It was growing increasingly difficult for her to face God, and she was seeing that other areas in her life were starting to disintegrate, to fall apart. She felt like her whole life was falling apart. And after a very brief discussion of this passage, she left greatly relieved and excited. Talked to her several weeks later, and she said, she, she, she just told me how profoundly these verses continued to affect her life. Another time I was talking with a young man, probably in his uh, early 30s, a man who had been a Christian all of his adult life, and he was telling me about his struggles with homosexuality. He also felt like his life was deteriorating. It had started with just some fairly mild fantasies that were no big deal, but as a Christian he knew that God looks on the heart, and to indulge in these fantasies was wrong. So when he did, when he allowed these fantasies to develop, he immediately felt guilt and fear. First he'd go to God and in tears apologize and swear he'd never do it again. But he did. And it became more and more difficult for him to face God. And his lifestyle began to slip, even to the point where he became involved in some immoral relationships. Now as different as these two problems seem... The answer for both is right here in this passage. The beginning place for this woman as she struggled in her quiet times was the same beginning place on the road to recovery for this man who struggled with homosexuality. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You see, in the last chapter, Paul has demonstrated, chapter 7 of Romans, Paul has demonstrated through his own experience that even the most mature Christian is still locked in a struggle and often loses that struggle. He finds that he... he cannot do the thing that he really, really wants to do. Deep in his heart, he wants to do it. And he cannot stop doing those things that he hates, that he swore he would never do again. And this causes Paul to cry out, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will free me from the body of this death? He doesn't say, Doggone it, I've got to toughen up. Or he doesn't say, Oh, well, nobody's perfect. He says, somebody help me. I cannot do it on my own. I can't beat certain sins. I need a Savior. I need help. See, that's the essential first step in dealing with sin. It's realizing that you need a Savior. You can't do it on your own. It may seem like if you, if you would only try it a little harder... Or if only this, or if only that. You could do it. Yeah, you could. You know you could. Well, stop it. You can't. It's not a question of fortitude. Who here has more fortitude than the Apostle Paul? You can't do it. You need a Savior. You may stomp on a certain behavior for a period of time, but it comes roaring back like a freight train. Knocks you flat. You can't. Do it. Dobson tells a story about a man who was walking down a lane. He hears this little voice saying, Somebody help the boy. Somebody help the boy. 
comes around a corner and here's a little boy caught on a fence and he can't get down. But he's not panicked, he's not screaming, he's not crying, he's just calmly saying, somebody help the boy. He needed a savior. He needed help and he knew it. There was no shame in it, there was no embarrassment, it's just a fact. Somebody help the boy. You need a savior. That's a fact. There's no shame in it, there's no embarrassment, it's a fact. You need a Savior, and you have a Savior. It is God through Christ, as Paul says in the last chapter. Unless we realize this, we will find ourselves doing exactly the wrong things in our own efforts to cure ourselves or to remove the tension within us. We may choose to give up and say, this Christianity stuff doesn't really work. At least not in my life it doesn't. It's not real. I mean, I can get dressed up, go to church, look at the preacher. But in my real life, it doesn't work. And so we try to become as comfortable as we can with our sins. We're stuck with them. We just have to get used to it. And others may say, no, I am not going to get comfortable with my sins. I want out. I'm not going to let myself get away with that. And so we try to change ourselves and we end up emotionally berating ourselves, calling ourselves names, calling ourselves fatso, hoping that'll help us control our eating. Getting angry with ourselves, pounding the steering wheel, threatening ourselves, even trying to emotionally punish ourselves. Some of us even going so far as to physically punish ourselves, maybe through deprivation of something like sleep or food or joy thinking that somehow that'll help, that'll change us. If we hurt ourselves, if we punish ourselves, we won't do it again. But Paul says in Colossians 2, self-abasement and severe treatment of the body are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. These things seem like they'll work. If I punish myself, I won't do it again. But the problem is, they just don't work. Well, what works? First of all, the realization that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. I wish I could burn this into your minds. But I can't, so you're going to have to remind yourselves. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You see, the law of sin and death is the, 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 the principle, the fact. A, a, a law, like the law of gravity, is just a fact. What goes up, comes down. That's fact. It's a principle. The law of sin and death is a fact. When I sin, death results. When I sin, I become isolated and alienated. This is the essence of death, separation. I become isolated and alienated from people around me because of guilt and shame. But more importantly, I become isolated, I become estranged from a holy and righteous God. And you see, the problem is if God is my Savior, the only one with adequate ability to help me, and I'm isolated from Him, I'm helpless. I'm left with only my own resources, which are basically to, to hate myself or to excuse myself, and that doesn't do a bit of good. If I'm isolated from God, then I'm more vulnerable to sin. You see, it's a cycle. It's a spiral. Sin leads to death, which leads to, to vulnerability to sin, which leads to death, to sin, to death, and it gets 
goes down and down and down. You're on a, a banister of a steep spiral staircase, and that banister's been well greased, and you're sliding down. You may, through maximum effort, be able to stop the slide, and you may even be able to pull yourself up a foot or two. But it's only a matter of time till your strength gives out and you're on your way down again. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. God has taken you off the banister. How? By removing all the sin from your life? Well, that's the way it seems logical to us. That seems the way he should have done it. That's why we're so frustrated with our sins, because they shouldn't be there anymore. We don't want them there. He doesn't want them there. Why are they there? Well, in the last chapter again, chapter 7, Paul makes the point, they're still there. See, that's not how God has done it, at least not initially. What he has done is he has left certain sins in our lives, but he's taken away the death. We sin, but there's no death. We sin, but there's no separation from God. We sin, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We remain connected with the one who can help. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has superseded the old law of sin and death. This is revolutionary. I think this is even scary. I sin, and even while I'm sinning, there's no condemnation. What does this mean, no condemnation? Well, it means that God does not reject me. God is not disgusted with me. He's not even slightly annoyed with me. God is delighted with me. And he's as pleased to be with me as he is to be in the presence of Jesus Christ even after I've sinned. Well, how can that be? Well, that can be because I am in Christ. If you remember back in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul went out of his way to demonstrate, to show us that there's nothing in us that deserves God's favor. There's nothing we have done or can do to earn a relationship with him. The good news, the gospel, is that through faith, that is, simply believing that he'll do what he says, through faith we are placed into Christ, and so we enjoy the exact same relationship with the Father that Christ does. Our relationship with God is based solely on the fact that we are in Christ, not on what we have or have not done. This is true every day, every second of your life. Just as true as it was the moment you trusted Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for you on the cross. So, if you're a Christian, there is no condemnation. You can turn immediately from your sin to God and say, I've sinned. I need you. You see, right there, The cycle's broken. Right there, the spiral is stopped. You've already defeated the enemy. Because Satan would like to take that sin and drive you away from God in shame and guilt and self-hatred. Instead, that sin has caused you to turn to God in dependence. Turn to God, accepting His grace, accepting His mercy. That which the enemy would use to separate us, 
draws us to God. Leaves us connected with the one who can help us. This is life from the spirit of life. But realize the enemy won't give up that easily. He just won't. You will still feel those accusations coming. You will still feel condemned. It may even seem that these feelings are from God. They are not. God does not condemn us. There is, therefore, no condemnation. He's not surprised. He's not disappointed. He knows us. He knows what he got when he bought us. He's not surprised. He knows the struggle we have, how thoroughly our flesh has been permeated by sin. He knows our frustration at our inability, even our unwillingness to shed sin. He knows and He cares. I remember this last Christmas break. I was watching my sister-in-law as she watched her son learning to ice skate. The kid was terrible. He'd go a couple feet and then he would sprawl. And it'd usually take one or two people who happened to be next to him at the moment. And he'd get up and he'd get so angry at himself. And he'd yell at himself and tell himself how terrible he was and how he'd never be able to make it. But not once did she say that. Not once. She picked him up and hugged him, comforted him, encouraged him, maybe told him something that he was doing wrong, taught him. That's just what God does. He doesn't reject us. He encourages us. He comforts us. He teaches and disciplines us just like any loving parent would do. When you feel those accusations coming, you can know they are from the enemy. Or maybe even from your own attempts, confused attempts, to change yourself. You say, look what you just did. Look how yelling at those kids hurt them. You're so cruel. Look what you were thinking about. You're disgusting. You're a liar. You're a hypocrite. You're fat. You smoke. Stop it. Those aren't from God. They don't please God and they don't do you a bit of good. They cannot change you. There is no condemnation. You know, even if some of those things are true, and probably some, if not most, are, so what? So what? My God knows they're true. He knows me and He loves me anyway. He does not reject me. And I can turn to Him and say, look what I've done. I need you. I think one of the most spiritual disciplines you can develop is the ability to say to yourself, to the enemy, so what? It's true, but so what? My God knows me and He loves me. And then turn to Him and let Him embrace you and comfort you and encourage you. Turn to Him and say, I need you. Someone may object here that uh, doesn't all this just excuse sin? Well, if someone is looking for an excuse to sin, by this point in Romans, they need to go all the way back to the beginning. Start over. Start reading with chapter 1, work your way all the way through chapter 7. Because Paul has already done a good job of demonstrating that sin hurts. Sin kills. It destroys us and the people we love. It enslaves, it grabs our lives, and it smashes them. 
Who wants an excuse to sin? It's like saying, by this point in Paul's argument, somebody is looking for an excuse to, to stick a pencil in their eye. Why? Why? It would hurt the eye. And it would destroy the eye. It's absurd. And so is looking for an excuse by this point in Paul's argument. Remember the end of chapter 7, he says, I want to do the right thing. I really do. I just can't. I want to stop doing those wrong things. But I do them anyway. He really wants freedom. He's not looking for an excuse. And we're not looking for an excuse. We want to be rid of sin. And this is the way out. You see, what Paul goes on to tell us is not only is there no condemnation, but there is release as well. Listen to verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He says the law, the system which operated on performance, do this and you'll live. Don't do this or you'll die. The law, what the law could not do, God did. The law could not save us because of the flesh. Now, if you're using a new international version, you have a word or a phrase substituted for the word flesh, the, the term sinful nature. I, I guess that's okay. I think it's a little bit unfortunate because there's nothing inherently sinful about the flesh. Scriptures tell us that Jesus came in the flesh. That is, he, he came as a human. If, if they had substituted the word maybe human nature... I think that would be a little more helpful in helping understand. See, what the flesh is, is, is pure and simple our humanity. It's our bodies and the feelings and the desires, the urges that come out of it. It's our minds, our logic, our reasonings, our figurings. It's our emotions and our desires. And there's nothing inherently sinful about these things. The problem is, as Paul pointed out last week, is that they've been, that our flesh has been so contaminated, so permeated by sin as to be virtually enemy territory. So when the, so that when the law says, do this, immediately our flesh, our bodies, our minds say, I don't feel like it. Or our logic says, well, if I do that, that's going to be a bummer. That's going to take something I need away. And our reasoning starts figuring it out. See, what, what happens is we can't bring ourselves to do what the law says because our bodies, our minds, our logic, our feelings, our emotions all team up to convince us that it's not the right thing to do or that it's not going to be good. It's not going to be better. It's not going to be just what we need. And so we're unable to keep the law. What the law could not do, that is, change us so that we become the kind of people we really do want to become, so that we do the right to healthy, constructive things. What the law could not do, God did. And He did it by sending His Son, who took on a flesh, 
says, in the likeness of our sinful flesh, it is a real flesh, but it's not sinful. It's not polluted by sin as our flesh is. And in that flesh, in that humanity, he became the sin offering, taking the condemnation that was due us and our sins on himself so that we need not be condemned, so that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that the price has been paid, there's absolutely no reason, nothing to keep us separated from God any longer for any reason. And there's more. The purpose in all this, this was done in order to, this is verse 4, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's in order that we might become the kind of people the law was trying to make, but couldn't. You see, the, what the law could not do God did. We usually feel like we have to change and then God will accept us. But God says, no, 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 no. I accept you. And I'm going to change you. Not by demanding change, but placing my life, placing my spirit in you. And having him bring life to you, to your mortal bodies. To change you from the inside out. When I was eight years old, I had a strep infection that migrated from my throat into my kidneys put me in bed for about six months. I couldn't get up and run outside and play. I couldn't go to school. But the law said, children, go to school. Now, it wasn't a matter of talking to myself. It wasn't a matter of fortitude. I just couldn't do it. I wanted to. I wanted to badly, but I couldn't. It wasn't until antibiotics were put inside of my body and the life was being restored to health. Not through pressure or guilt, but through life working its way out in me. Then I could get up and run and jump and play. And then I could go to school like the law said. I could fulfill the requirements of the law. Not because I was badgered into it, but because there was life. And God has placed His Spirit inside of us, and He's going to transform us from the inside out. His life works out that way. Let me read 5 through 11. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. Again, that Spirit is inside. There's a progression here. First of all, he says, the Spirit changes who we are. Verse 5, we are no longer according to the flesh. We're according to the Spirit. Now put in a little easier terms, we are spiritual. 
And I'm sure you've always thought that a spiritual person was somebody who always looked pious and sanctimonious. Always had some profound but uh, totally incomprehensible thing to say to kill any good conversation. But that's not true. That's not what spiritual is. If you have the Spirit of Christ in you, if you're a Christian, that's the point of verse 9, you have the Spirit of Christ. And you are spiritual. If you want to see a spiritual person, look in the mirror. You might say, well, I don't act too spiritual. That's not the point yet. You are spiritual. Verse 5, he says that those that are spiritual will set their minds on the things of the Spirit, while those who are still according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. You see, who you are begins to affect how you think. When he says, uh, what does it mean to set your mind on things of the flesh? Well, remember that the flesh is your humanity. It's just your body, the urges, the feelings that come out of it. It's your mind, your reasoning, your logic, your ability to figure things out for yourself, your emotions, your desires. This is what the flesh is. And there's nothing inherently wrong with it. But the mind set on them focuses on these things. It's controlled by these things. Your behavior and your thoughts are controlled by what you feel, what you can figure out. In contrast, the mind set on the spirit is controlled by the spirit. It turns to the spirit of God inside and asks for answers. Let's the spirit of God teach what is right, what is good, what is healthy. Let's the spirit of God determine and control thinking and behavior through his word through his urgings, through his corrections, through his people. The difference is night and day. Say you just got home from work, and you're tired. Your wife has just asked you to do something you don't really want to do. The mind controlled on the flesh focuses on how your body feels. You're tired, man. You need a break. You need to rest. And it starts to think about all the other things she has ever asked you to do. And it concludes, well, if I, only, if I do this, she'll only ask me to do something else. Then it starts to focus on how unfair she is to ask you to do something when you're tired. And it moves from there to her other undesirable qualities. You see, the mindset on the flesh is death. It leads to disharmony and isolation. But the mindset on the spirit, in contrast, stops and asks the Spirit, what should I do here? What's the right thing? And it considers what the Spirit has said in Scripture, that a husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church, gave himself up for her. And it asks the Spirit for the strength to go ahead and do whatever is right, regardless of how the body feels. It asks the Spirit to change you so that you even want to do what is right. The mindset on the Spirit is life that brings harmony, it brings satisfaction with God's good work. You see, there's nothing wrong with being tired. There's nothing wrong with trying to figure things out. There's nothing wrong with wanting things from people. There's nothing wrong with the feelings and the desires of the body. But these things are not to control us. If they do control us, if we base our lives on these things, the result is death. We choose wrongly, and it puts us in opposition to God. 
Verse 7 and 8. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, there can't be two judges. There can't be two ultimate authorities. If you retain the ultimate authority in yourself and your own ability to figure things out and what you feel is right and wrong, best, better, constructive, destructive, if you retain authority, you can't give it to God. And if you give it to God through His Spirit, you can't retain it. It's an either-or situation. You can't have it both ways. The end of one is death. The end of the other is life. Our society has chosen death. Telling people, let your feelings be your guide. Dig down. You'll know what is right. This is the theme of countless children's programs. Over and over, I see it. The little ponies and and the... Munchkins, whatever. This is the theme. Dig down deep and you'll know what to do. It's a big lie that leaves us open to hundreds of little lies. Because when we retain authority in our own life, when we figure it out for ourselves, we come to the most illogical, logical conclusions. We end up doing the most foolish things, destructive things, thinking we've got it figured out. This is the same logic that leads people to conclude that... uh, Money brings happiness. Well, it seems like it does. When I buy something new, I feel good. So if I buy a lot of new things, I'll feel real good. But to do that, I've got to commit my life to making money. I've got to commit, I've got to go after money with energy and time that really belongs to someone else. It's the same logic that leads us to be be convinced that an immoral relationship is just what I need. It feels like it, seems like it. Logically, it should. Or that a new spouse is what I need. Or, or more subtly, it's the, it's the same uh, lies that, that lead us to think, well, you deserve to be grouchy. You're old. You can't help it. You're tired. Your children will understand. Or the, the clerk at the store, you can't help it. You're sick. That person's used to people barking at them. And it excuses our behavior. It leads us to death. The result is death. Now, here is the amazing part. Paul does not now go out and say, or say, go out and set your minds on the Spirit. Go do it. He doesn't say that. Listen. He says three things. First, he says, if you have the Spirit, you will set your mind on the Spirit. Let me read 9 through 11. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That Spirit inside of you is going to change you. It is. This is a promise, not a command. He is going to give life to you. And remember back in verse 3, Paul said, What the law could not do, God did. He did not say, what the law could not do now, you can do. No, he says, what the law could not do, God did. And in verse 5, he says, if you're spiritual, if you have the Spirit in you, you will inevitably 
set your mind on the things of the Spirit. It's a sure thing. It's as sure as God's Word. The God who can take a little acorn that looks absolutely nothing like an oak tree and build an oak. The same God who he says here, raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he's got that kind of resurrection power, is going to change you. It's going to transform you. Your part, my part, is to trust him, is to believe that he'll do what he says, and to relax, and then to delight in it, to enjoy, even though I'm acting like an acorn. The second thing God says, or Paul says, excuse me, is something we can do. It's a new privilege. We can choose not to live according to the flesh. We have no obligation to live according to the flesh any longer. We can become radical. I see a few conservatives grabbing for their chest. Not radical in our politics, but radical in our freedom to love. To go beyond ourselves, beyond what we even thought was reasonable in giving of ourselves to other people and to loving other people. We can walk into good works that God has prepared for us that we never thought we could do. Let me read verses 12 through 14. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, that is, if by the power of the Spirit you're saying no to your own figurings, to your own feelings, and instead turning to the Spirit in dependence on Him, then you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Okay, and the third thing that Paul says at this point I think brings us back into the struggle, back into the battle. You remember the context for all of this is the fact that we fail to do the things that we want to do and we're unable to stop doing those things that we hate. But Paul gives us another word of reassurance here. Verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You know, we hear all this stuff, I don't have to be controlled by my body, by my feelings, by, by what seems right to me. And instead of feeling free, we feel afraid. What if it doesn't work for me? I don't have any excuses now. Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not slaves to be bullied and beaten into obedience. You're adopted children to be loved into compliance, into, into conformity. I've got two adopted children. Sometimes I don't think I can take it. I love them so much. Occasionally, rarely, they fail. What kind of father would I be if I didn't expect that? If I didn't plan on using those times to affirm my love for them, even in the midst of discipline? It's interesting, the the, the terms Paul uses here. He says, "We we cry out... Abba, Father. This is Aramaic, the, the, the street language of the time. And it's actually even children's slang. We cry out, Abba, Daddy. A couple of years ago when my youngest daughter uh, was only a year old, I was giving her and her sister a bath. And the phone rang. 
So I told Holly, who's about a year and a half older than Jessica, watch your sister. I'm going to go answer the phone. I went and answered the phone. In the middle of my conversation, I hear my oldest daughter say, Daddy! Dropped that phone, and I ran, knocking down and trampling anything that was in my way. When I got there, Jessica was okay. She just swallowed a little bit of water. But I scooped her up, and I hugged her and her sister, and I soothed them, and I comforted them. Will our Heavenly Father be any slower when we hurt and confused in our failure against the flesh, against sin, or maybe afraid in the midst of the struggle, when we, His adopted children, cry out, Abba, Daddy, or will He not scoop us up in His arms, soothe us, comfort us? Let me just read the last two verses. Verse 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. You see, all that we've said this morning is true only if you're spiritual, only if the Spirit of God is in you. Some of you may be asking, well, how do I know? How will I know if the Spirit is in me? Well, the Scripture gives us several doctrinal tests in uh, 1 John 4, 1 Corinthians 12, both places. It gives us a, a way to determine whether the Spirit in us is God's Spirit. It says, when you really think about it, when you dig down deep, do you really believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh? Do you really believe that Jesus is Lord? Have you made Him Lord of your life? Well, if you believe these things, if you've made Him Lord, then the Spirit of God is in you. Scripture says it, and it's true. Let me give you one more exercise. It's not a theological test, but it's something I use in counseling quite a bit. This afternoon, find some time where you can be undisturbed, get off by yourself, and ask yourself the question, what do I really, really want? And start digging. You might start with some superficial things that you want. I want enough money to buy food and pay the rent. But keep asking, what do I want more than that? What do I want more than that? And keep digging. This is sometimes a very difficult and painful process. But dig until you reach rock bottom. There I think you're going to find one of two things. Either you want what you want, or you want more than anything else in the world to be God's. You want what He wants. Well, this is the Spirit affirming with your spirit that you are the Son of God. Because you say, not my will, but thine. Just as His Son said. Well, if this is true, then not only do you have everything we've been talking about this morning, but you have the inheritance that flows out of that, inheritance that David's going to describe to you next week. This week, remember, you need a Savior. And you have one. His name is Jesus. And it's your heart's desire to become like Him. But you fail. But He is committed to finishing the process. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, for me this is amazing stuff. That you don't condemn us no matter how ugly our sins are. Whether they're just in our hearts or whether we actually carry them out. And that you free us. You begin that freeing process just by your acceptance. By our ability to, in the, to immediately turn to you and say, look what I've done. I need you. Lord, help us to close our ear to the enemy. To close our ears to ourselves when we condemn ourselves. To know that you don't condemn us accept that connection with you, that unity with you that we have even then so that you can love us and minister to us, so that you can change our thinking from one controlled by our flesh to one controlled by your spirit. And I praise you that you're doing that and that you freed us from any obligation to go with our flesh. Just continue your process. Continue to do what you committed yourself to doing until you come again and we ask that you come quickly. Pray this in your name. Amen.